0: Hello, Charlie. Hello. Hello, Elliot. Hi, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about healthcare?
1: Oh, yeah. Giddy Ab- up.
2: Absolutely.
0: Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's Top Priority is healthcare. It was recorded on December 17th, 2019. There are two people helping with this one.
1: My name is Charlie Katibi, and I'm the health policy analyst for Americans for Prosperity.
2: My name is Elliot Fox and I'm the director of healthcare initiatives for Stand Together.
0: All right, gentlemen, let's get to know you a little better. Charlie, if you don't mind, tell us Tell us your story, man. That's really what I want to hear. What's your story?
1: Sure, sure. So I first got interested in healthcare policy a few years ago. I was working at a state policy network think tank in the state of Wyoming, and I saw firsthand a lot of the problems with our healthcare system. It's a very rural state. Um, The area doesn't have many healthcare providers, and costs as a result are extremely expensive for healthcare.
0: And today,
1: uh, still extremely <laughs> bad. Yeah.
0: And so you went from <clears throat> working there to working where you're at today.
1: Uh yeah. Afterwards, I worked as a government relations manager for the Heartland Institute, and given my experience, uh, they wanted me to work as a little bit more on healthcare issues uh, as well nationwide, uh, and that brought me here. Excellent,
2: Elliot. Yeah. Yeah, I started working on uh, on healthcare in our community about six years ago, uh, and it wasn't because it was a space that I I came into it knowing I had a passion there, uh, but that was really where you know we had the biggest need on the team, and so it was uh, it was really like getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. I mean, as we're going to talk about more, healthcare is such a um, complicated uh, issue area. And so that provided a, a really good opportunity for me to um, kind of uh, roll up my sleeves and, and learn uh, a lot of the different nuances of the issue area. I've worked in a few different roles in my, in my time in the community. So I'm actually just circling back to healthcare um, in the past year, but I, I worked at the Charles Koch Institute um, for several years working to combat cronyism and corporate welfare, which as we'll talk about as well, there's plenty of that in healthcare, um, and also more recently working with... Russ Latino, um, the Economic Opportunity Priority Initiative leader, which healthcare is a, is a part of that priority initiative, uh, to help him start to build out some of the early stage strategies for economic opportunity, including healthcare.
0: That, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that uh, I, w- I really hope these, these podcasts do is, is help clarify some of the, the more detailed and some of the more nuanced, some of the stuff people might not understand. For example, which I'm sure this might not come up today, but we will definitely have a podcast on it on the future. Something like certificate of need. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that much about it. Mm-hmm. I I knew some state senators in Missouri who were, who were against it, but it never was on my radar. And I've just now started working on some curriculum regarding certificate of need. And I'm just blown away by this, this idea. And so I think there's a lot out there that people need to learn more about, especially in this arena. So let's, let's talk with, let's start with what, what do we stand for? Oh, and what are we do even doing dealing with healthcare?
2: Sure. Well, so first of all, uh, this issue is is actually deeply personal to me right now because uh, I have a pretty bad cold, as you can probably hear. So I really feel like our healthcare system is uh, is failing me. Um, so You're the worst. that that was all. that was <laughs> a, that was a joke. Uh, not a lot of <laughs> strong start there, but um, it, you know, in all seriousness, you know, we really care about this issue because you know, it's pretty simple. Good, accessible, and affordable healthcare is vital to life. Um, even if you're a, a genuinely a, or a, regular, a generally pretty healthy person who doesn't require a lot of day-to-day medical attention, like for instance, this cold I have right now, it doesn't actually need medical attention. There's a very good chance that at some point in our lives, we're all going to interact uh, in a substantive way with the healthcare system, and when we do that, when that happens, we all want a quality experience that helps us walk away more healthy from that experience than when we came into it and at the lowest possible cost. Um, And, you know, when we look at healthcare in the United States, Charlie talked about the example in Wyoming, we can find some some bright spots, find some positive examples, but, you know, really too often the system does a better job right now of protecting entrenched interests than serving patients. It sounds like, like you were going to say pretentious interests. Pretentious <laughs> interests. Many of those interests may be pretentious.
1: They are extremely pretentious. Those <laughs> special
2: and pretentious. As someone who's time. met
1: those interests, they are they're quite pretentious. Well, I
2: don't want to overgeneralize. Some of them might not be. I'm
1: sure I'm sure some Okay, of we're gonna are say they're all pretentious,
2: pretentious. But so, you know, we're seeing that it does a better job of, of serving those pretentious interests than protecting patients. Um, and unfortunately, many of the ideas that we're hearing coming from both the left and the right, uh, might will take us further in that direction, and missing from that conversation is really an alternative, positive vision in healthcare about the role that bottom-up solutions can play. So to summarize, we're engaging in this issue space because it matters a great deal, because our current system is preventing providers, patients, entrepreneurs from bringing the best solutions from the table, and we have a huge opportunity as a community um, to help change that and allow those solutions to emerge.
1: And it sounds common sense that, like, a healthcare system should serve patients. Um, But all too often, those entrenched interests, um, they're the ones making those decisions. It's not patients, it's not families, it's not communities. Um, And unfortunately, they're one of the leading reasons why we have all the problems we talk about in our healthcare system, where there's a lot of areas, particularly in Missouri, as an example, uh, where there's just not that many healthcare providers um, and the providers that are that are there and are remaining, they're there for a reason. They're there because they prevented everyone else from coming in and competing, and as a result, they can charge much higher prices for a lot of basic healthcare services. Um, so we want to reset the conversation and really talk about what are the what are the reasons why our healthcare system is such a mess? Why are costs so high? Why is it so inaccessible? And how can we address them, break those barriers, and really reset the conversation towards getting a healthcare system that serves patients and uh, not those entrenched interests?
0: So I'm glad you brought up um, breaking those barriers. That's really, you know, that's the foundation of our vision. We exist to break barriers. So let's talk a little bit about how we're doing that. What, what is it in this arena? What barriers are we breaking?
1: Sure, sure. So let's start with certificate of need. Um, that was what something you mentioned. So, in about 35 states, if you're a healthcare, if you're a hospital or a healthcare provider, and you want to open in a new area, you actually can't. Um, and the reason why is because there are these laws that state that if you want to open, you basically have to make the case to a government board um, that that community actually needs the healthcare facility that you want. That you need to prove that they need the new services that you're going to be offering, the new uh, staff that are going to be coming in. Um, and if you don't, and if you cannot prove that, you, you won't be able to open that facility. Um, and a big reason why those barriers block these uh, providers from coming in is those boards often staffed by existing healthcare providers. Um, So in Michigan, for example, over half of the state's CON board is represented by hospitals. Um, And in South Carolina, for instance, um, the co-chairman of the state's Certificate of Need Board is the vice president of the state's largest hospital group. Um, So these boards have an active interest in making sure that new competitors don't come in. And as a result, costs can go through the roof. Um, In fact, uh, there was a study that found that Areas where there's only a single hospital charges 12% higher prices than areas where there's more competition.
0: So if I understand you right, you're telling me that that there's a government entity out there Mm -hmm. that decides whether a specific area needs more health care provided to them. And that board is generally staffed or, or made up of, comprised of existing Healthcare professionals who would be in direct competition with this new entity.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: That's right. And I, I, what I've found is that there are typically three groups of people when it comes to certificate of need. There are people who haven't heard of it. That's most of us. Uh, there are folks who benefit from it, and then there are folks who have heard of it, don't benefit from it, and recognize instantly that it's a just a ridiculous scheme um, that benefits uh, entrenched providers over over patients.
0: I'm I'm confused as to why we would ever establish something like this. What was the logic behind it? I mean, there there had to mm-hmm. be something, some selling point.
1: The selling point behind this was it all started back in the 1960s. Medicare and Medicaid came onto the scene. They started charging. They started throwing a lot of money at the healthcare system, and a lot of states, starting with New York, basically said, uh, "Hey, we recognize that." All this demand is driving up health care spending. What we need to do is control the supply if you want to control the amount of spending, the rising costs. So New York started this. And then later on, the federal government basically mandated that if you're a state and you're receiving Medicaid funding, you have to pass these laws if you want to keep receiving Medicaid funding. So the federal government basically mandated that states have to enact these laws, establish these boards, and basically attempt to control rising health care spending by restricting access to vital health care services.
0: It's very similar to what they did with uh, federal road funding by saying if you want federal funding for roads, you have to have a drinking age of 21. We're not making you do it. Sure, We're right. just going to keep this money from you if you don't right absolutely yeah
2: but then of course the the federal government recognized (laughs) fairly quickly that the laws were not providing uh the results that that uh, were originally articulated as we see all too often with public policy good intentions don't equal good results yeah and the federal government has since reversed its position yeah uh, not long after the original uh action and has called on states to remove them yeah unfortunately we're seeing as Charlie mentioned, there are still, you know, 35 states with these laws still on the books. So despite the clear evidence and the arguments against certificate of need, you know, we we run up against this, you know, problem of the interests who benefit from the policy often have the most sway, not surprisingly, in these public policy conversations. And that's why these things stick. And one more point, just really quickly on this, is we're not just talking about new large hospitals. This can be for anything as simple as a handful of new hospital beds for an existing hospital, an expansion of a facility, even something as simple as an MRI or CAT scan machine, you need a certificate of need. Uh, The state needs to to grant that this service is needed for you to offer it. And we've seen examples, uh, fortunately, we've seen some um, promising uh, lawsuits move forward against these laws in um, North Carolina and Kentucky, I believe, most recently. And there's a Another example um, of a doctor in Virginia, his name is Dr. Shaw, who uh, went through a multi-year approval process to try to get approval for an uh, an imaging machine, and it was an expensive onerous process, was ultimately denied that application um, to get that machine. And so Dr. Shah said, you know, if I could get one of these machines, I would give away a thousand free scans, free MRI and CAT scans to patients who need them, but I don't want to undertake this multi-year, pro- expensive process where I might not even be approved uh, by the end of it. And so again, what we don't see are all of the providers, you know, new facilities that don't exist because of these regulations. And in a, a state like Florida, um, where the the team in Florida did you know fantastic work repealing almost all the certificate of need laws this past session, um, we're already seeing reports of facilities that are opening or expanding in Florida. Just you know, months after that law was repealed. Uh, so again, we have pretty clear evidence that when these things are, are repealed, you know, good outcomes happen, but it's it's still going to be an uphill battle to make more progress on this issue. But hopefully we can get some more momentum.
0: And it follows that if there are more, if there's a greater supply, you know, and the, the demands there, the costs should go down, yeah. which benefits yeah. everyone. What are some other uh, barriers that we're dealing with?
1: Another big one, and this is one that has actually attracted a lot of bipartisan agreement from both the left and the right, is how states treat advanced nurses, physician assistants, and other non-physician providers. Um, So something that a lot of states are looking at is revising the scope of practice of these practitioners. Um, So starting in the 1960s, um, again with Medicare and Medicaid, there was a lot of money, new money sloshing into the healthcare system. And the existing physician groups simply weren't available to treat all these new patients. These were millions of elderly patients and poor patients that were entering the healthcare system. And there simply weren't enough doctors to treat all of them. So, what some states decided to do was open these new academic programs to start training new, highly skilled non-physicians to deliver a lot of healthcare services. So these are nurse practitioners. So these are nurses that have a master's degree or a doctorate degree to deliver primary care, specialty care, all sorts of different types of care. Um, nurse midwives, nurse anesthetists, nurse specialists. All these new uh, uh, professionals came onto the scene. Unfortunately, what a lot of doctors groups uh React. What a a lot of doctors groups did afterwards is they pressured lawmakers to restrict the ability of these nurses to deliver care uh, efficiently and independently. So now they said, okay, if you want to practice, you have to work for me, a doctor, and I get to decide in a contract that I write for you what services I believe you are trained and skilled to deliver and which ones you can't. And as a result, in the states that have enforced these laws, there's less healthcare care access because doctors simply do not trust nurses to deliver care. And there's higher health care costs because doctors charge far more than nurses for these services. Um, so this is another area where we're trying to enter into um, because that's another major barrier that needs to be broken.
0: I'm seeing a, a, a consistent theme of protectionism. Through throughout these is this is this the constant uh, connection between these?
1: Absolutely, yeah. With certificate need boards, with these physician agreements, it's a it's these are players that don't have the best interests of patients in mind, um, and they're the ones making decisions over the kind of care that is best for patients. It's not patients. It's not families it's these entrenched interests who have a disproportionate share over decision-making.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I, might, I might qualify that statement a, a little bit because I think you're right. I mean, I think ultimately what this issue comes down to is opposition from entrenched interests. You know, at the same time, you know, healthcare is an issue where I think a lot of folks get into this space because they want to help patients, because they have, you know, the best interests of patients at heart. Unfortunately, you know, the current system doesn't incentivize people to always be focused on that. Um, And so you can see a situation where, you know, you might even tell yourself that you're focused solely on the interests of patients, but at the same time, you know, be lobbying in your state legislature against allowing nurse practitioners to be able to prescribe medication or practice independently. And unfortunately, what we've heard from some physicians is even if they, you know, ideologically agree with this point uh, or, or can see the, the evidence in favor of why, you know, nurse practitioners or other advanced nurses should be able to provide these services, they're not going to be looked upon favorably in their community if they come out vocally in support of these issues. And so I think really the, it, it's helpful for me to look at this as a systems problem. You know, the current system, you know, doesn't, doesn't create the right incentives for the actors and the, the stakeholders in the system, whether they're hospitals whether they're physicians, um, whoever whoever they whoever we're talking about, um, to you know be in support of of those things that are going to best benefit physicians. And I think you know one thing that we see in the healthcare space is that we're kind of ironically we're all, we're often focused on Band-Aid solutions to the problems. So this constant you know again well meaning drive to solve the constant problems that are coming up in healthcare kind of work. Uh, in a symbiotic in a bad way relationship with these entrenched interests because there are always problems that need to be solved in healthcare. It's true that prices need to be lower. It's true that prices need to be more transparent and that healthcare needs to be more accessible. But rather than looking at the underlying problems, the (laughs) underlying barriers to why those things are not the case now, there's always a demand for that quick fix, top-down solution that usually comes in the form of a mandate. And I think this is where we really see a powerful role that we can play in this space because the conversation is really dominated right now you know, by healthcare policy advocates, again, who are well-meaning, but who are really focused on how we can kind of keep building layers of Band-Aid solutions on the problem rather than looking at the underlying causes.
0: Yeah. We're consistently seeing government create solutions to problems government created, That's which right. creates yes. more problems, which yes. we need
2: more solutions for. Exactly, and we and we still hear, uh, and for some of us, it makes us want to tear our hair out. That tear our hair out that uh, we've we've tried the market approach in healthcare, uh, and it's just not working. When what we have in healthcare is it really couldn't be farther from from a free market right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're just talking about basic, really basic reforms. This is Econ one hundred and one reforms. There's limited supply, so prices rise. All we're saying is allow supply to meet demand, allow providers to meet the needs of patients and allow more of them to compete so that they can offer lower prices. Um, and this simply hasn't happened for 50 years in this country. And now people are surprised that healthcare costs are out of control. If you go back and uh, I love hearing
0: that we've tried the free market approach. It hasn't worked. And I, I, I always reference a, a book called From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State. Don't know if you've ever read it. Great book talks about what healthcare was like when America started up until you know, around the, the 50s and 60s and how what a dramatic turn it took. But believe it or not, uh, people took care of one another. You know, I, Again, I go back to the question, what if government doesn't do it? If government doesn't do it, are we just going to let people die in the streets? I don't think we'll do that. We, yeah. Our history has shown we don't do that. We will help take care of one another. Yeah. Um, so what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that these barriers that we're breaking are being created by government with cronyism. With cronies out there that are yeah. that are keeping people from competing with them. So we've got certificate of need, um what was the other one you said?
1: Uh the uh, scope of practice. Scope of barriers. practice. What else? Anything else? Uh telemedicine is a big one. And that's another and this is sort of another uh barrier that has sort of come about that we've sort of realized that still exists. Um, another way that a lot of patients are trying to deal with all those healthcare provider shortages, such, such as like if you're in Missouri, there's a lot of rural communities that have mm-hmm. um a lot of problems accessing healthcare. So a lot of patients, what a lot of patients are doing now is remotely accessing healthcare services from uh, providers remotely. So they'll have a Skype conversation, for instance, with a physician or a nurse practitioner. Um, this will be in real time, and then they'll be able to determine they'll be able to determine their diagnosis and maybe be able to prescribe medications. Unfortunately, there are some existing barriers to this new uh, technology, and these are state licensing laws. So for instance, in the state of Missouri, there are a lot of there just simply aren't enough physicians available to deal with all of the patients' needs of the state. So what a lot of people are talking about now is, why don't we allow physicians or healthcare providers in other states to serve those remote those needs uh, those remote telemedicine needs of patients within Missouri and a big problem is that state licensing laws basically require you to get a physician license a medical license within the state where the patient is um where the patient is located and that's a big problem because those states simply don't have enough physicians and providers. So something that we're looking at now is basically removing those licensing barriers and saying that if, you're, if you want to receive uh, telemedicine services from a provider in another state, you should be perfectly free to. And that's something we, did, we worked on in uh, the state of Florida this year. So this summer, the legislation was passed that we worked on that would basically allow Florida residents to access telemedicine services from any provider in the country um and this is really going to open up a lot of access because that state has a lot of provider shortages like missouri and a lot of other states and they pay higher healthcare costs as a result because telemedicine services often cost less um yeah so and
2: as charlie mentioned a lot of this stuff is pretty common sense right i mean you know, if especially if Florida, a state where a lot of people are are living there for part of the year and living somewhere else for part of the year, you know, if you have a, a a physician that you that you know and trust and you've developed a relationship with, and then you move, you know, it's hard to think of a reason why you shouldn't still be able to continue to see that physician and have a relationship with that physician when the when we you know for many years we've been at the point where technology can allow you to continue that relationship, and so again. In a lot of these cases, it's econ 101, or it's just making sure that our laws are reflecting the advances in technology and are able to catch up with that.
0: We've talked a lot about external barriers that the government's creating and, and then is creating. I'm, I'm curious, are there any internal barriers that, that we're having to deal with? And mainly I'm thinking about technophobia. Are there are there groups out there that are really um, pushing against some of these reforms because they, you know, they have internal barriers that... That make them scared.
2: Yeah, I mean the answer is is yes, um, and I think you know understanding the role that culture plays in healthcare is something that we're always trying to learn more about, and it's it's one where um, you know actually it'd be it it'd be beneficial for you, Joanne, probably to have a conversation with a member of the of the tech and innovation team because they've done a lot a lot more thinking really in this space, and have worked with some um, partners who are thinking about how to combat cultural fears. Uh, I know one group that they've worked with is—it's uh, called Pessimist Archive. <laughs> if you heard of Pessimist Archive, and so they—you know—they have these examples of kind of of technophobia fears from over the years that seem ridiculous to us now, but people apparently took seriously uh, back in the day about uh, you know how. Automobiles are going to change the structure of our brains and no, they, like elongate them or weird things like they that. Had
0: a, they had a great podcast on uh, mirrors. People were yeah. were afraid of mirrors because they would create such a vanity problem in the in the country that yeah. we should just abolish them lest we uh, become so vain.
2: Right. Clearly that happened, and they were probably right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. One one thing I I will say is that I think, you know. Certainly, in terms of, of looking at this through the lens of self actualization, the healthcare system puts significant barriers on people being able to do that. And, and one dimension of that is, you know, if you're not able to receive, uh, you know, quality medical care at an affordable price, you know, that's something that's going to hold you back from being able to to realize your true potential. This is basic stuff: Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, basic needs being met. Another way to look at this is. You know, people that are currently in the healthcare system. Just the other day, I was looking at um, a journal called, I think it's called Medical Economics, um, and they had done a survey of physicians, and 92% reported uh, being burnt out at some point in their career. And it was, I don't remember the number for people that were currently burnt out, but I think it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a, a big problem for physicians right now who are overwhelmed by the current system and can't dedicate time to patients. So when, after that question they asked, you know, what's the biggest reason for your burnout? And the, the most common answer by far was government regulations or administrative paperwork resulting from, um, you know, administrative, uh, burdens. Um, and so I think, again, this goes back to, you know, providers that want to help patients want to do the things that are in the best interest of patients, but in many cases just can't because of the current system.
0: My, my, uh, childhood doctor, Dr. Carpenter, great doctor, when he, uh, he'd retired, but he didn't stop practicing. When we'd see him, he was always tan. He was always looking good. And where, where you been? Oh, I've been down, uh, down in the Bahamas. oh vacationing. No. Practicing medicine because they'll let me down there. Yeah. And he would talk about the fact that I can just treat people. I don't have to spend so much time filling out forms and reporting to the government what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just allowed, to treat people. And so when you talk about self-actualization, I want to make sure that we're, we're understanding it isn't just the self-actualization of the patients. It's the self-actualization of the doctors. These doctors did not get into this field because they enjoy bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. They got into this field because they, they want to help people and they want to make some money and they're not being allowed to help as many people as they can. And, and often, uh, the government's limiting the amount of money. And so that, you know, that's, I know we, it sounds like a contradiction that healthcare costs are so high and, and doctors aren't making as much as they should, but mm. that's the, that's the fact. And, and maybe, maybe they make less uh, per patient, but they're allowed to see more patients. I don't know. But I know that, that when you look at the surgery center of Oklahoma city yeah. <clears throat> and you see that they are, they are serving people, at a low cost, and they are making the money they want, and that they are happy to be doing what they want. You can see the difference between someone who is burned out from dealing with paperwork and bureaucracy versus someone who is who is becoming actualized, who is living uh, what they want to live. That's a big difference, and it, I, I I think it's important that we have doctors who are enjoying their work and not doctors who are who are seeing us as yet another stack of paperwork.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and I'm really glad you mentioned Keith Smith. Um, after uh, folks who are listening, after you listen to every single one of Dwayne's podcasts, I would really encourage you to listen to a, another podcast um, pretty recently by, um, the podcast is called Econ Talk. It's hosted by a guy named Russ Roberts. And he recently had Keith Smith, who founded the Surgery Center of Oklahoma um, on his podcast. And it's just a great example of, You know, listening to that podcast for me, it was really cool to hear about all of the different characteristics that we see when incentives are properly aligned between provider and patient. Um, And so we were here, you know, you're hearing all of these things that happen at the surgery center that don't happen in our current (coughs) system. So you go to the website for the surgery center of Oklahoma and the prices are transparent. They're all listed on the website. They're all a fraction of the cost that uh, our insurance companies pay to hospitals for the same surgery. And one of the really cool, uh, you know, aspects that stood out to me were how focused on quality all of the employees of that center are. because the reputation is so critical. All it takes is a, is a patient or a handful of patients to uh, really, you know, have a negative impact on the reputation of the place. And as a result of that, every interaction and surgery that they're having with patients, they're really focused on making sure that patients have a quality experience. And I contrast that with, and I'm sure you guys have examples Mm. as well, of friends and family who all have some, everyone seems to have some horror story of our current healthcare system, of a, a hospital that stuck them with a bill for a service they didn't even get, uh, or charge them for a mistake that the hospital made. It's it's, you know, I don't think we want to look at these kinds of examples as the cure all or the silver bullet, but they are certainly bright spots um, in our in our current system right now. And it also reminds me of a one example um, we didn't talk about, which is of direct models. Um, direct
1: primary care.
2: Direct primary care. Yeah, Charlie, do you want yeah, sure. to? Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. So another issue. So we talked about uh, the problems with. Uh, physicians basically having to divert all their time to administrative issues and not being able to actually deliver care to patients. Um, and something that a lot of physicians are starting to do now is deliver direct primary care. So instead of the traditional fee-for-service model where they'll deliver care for a patient and then bill their insurer independently with a, an, on a on a fee-for-service basis, so they'll charge them for each different thing that costs a lot of money for a physician to bill an insurer and negotiate with them he will probably have to hire some administrative staff to do that that can absorb about 30 percent of a physician's practice budget Um, so what a lot of physicians have started to do now is revert to a direct primary care model so under this model it sort of works like a gym membership where instead of you ch- instead of charging on a fee for service basis now you basically charge every patient on a monthly basis you basically say we're going to charge 30 50 bucks per adult and about $20 per child and once you move to that model you're not interacting with an insurance company at all in fact you're dire- interacting directly with the patient um, the exchange is entirely cash based <clears throat> and As a result, you have a lot more time and a lot more money available to actually deliver care to the patient. In fact, direct primary care patients actually experience about 30 minutes uh, per visit with their doctor. Um, And under a traditional fee-for-service arrangement, you can be lucky to get seven minutes with your doctor. Um, So that really helps doctors self-actualize, really do what they went into medicine to do which is to actually see a patient, experience what they're going through, understand their problems, and actually find solutions.
0: That sounds a lot like concierge. Is that, is that the, same, the same idea, concierge medicine?
1: It's the same idea, but it's different in the respect that direct primary care basically removes insurance entirely. Mm-hmm. With concierge, there is insurance is still there to pay for some parts, but with direct primary care, it's essentially removed entirely from the primary care experience entirely um so and it is a lot less expensive far less expensive than concierge medicine typically as well Uh, that that sounds attractive to me because
0: i think about uh, you know my family you'd think with eight kids you'd be going to the doctor all the time but we rarely get sick, but if we had – it reminds me of that gym membership. People keep gym memberships month after month and they never go because <laughs> they're always going to go next month. Yeah. Um, and that, that allows uh, gym, gyms to stay open uh, because they, they gyms always have more members than they could possibly fit in there because people aren't going to show up. So I could see the same thing working for doctors where they're getting these things. You know, they're getting the, the monthly memberships coming in. Yeah. And people go when they, they need to.
1: Yeah. But it also benefits patients in another respect because if a doctor is only receiving a fixed, predictable amount of money per month, per patient, per year, they have a far greater incentive to understand what is that patient's diet routine like, what's their exercise routine like, how can they actually educate them on how to actually live a healthier life. So they actually take time to basically understand the patient better and make sure that they actually aren't going into the doctor that often. Um, and as a result, you can see that patients, particularly those with chronic conditions, their overall healthcare care costs are far less when they have a direct primary care doctor instead of a typical Doctor.
2: Yeah, and it, it really flips the incentives that are in the current system kind of on their head because right now, if you're a physician and you're, you're running a business, you have to think about what services you can bill for. And, you know, you can't, in any case, you can't bill for a phone call or an email or a brief exchange. Whereas with direct primary care, when you're paying that monthly fee, it just incentivizes a more holistic interaction um, with your physician. And contrast that also. You know, with the incentives of many you know, of the insurance companies that many of us receive our coverage from, especially if we you know, receive it through, our, through employer-sponsored coverage, where those insurance companies know you're, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be on their plan for forever. Um, and so they're doing a lot of their risk adjustment based on the fact that you might not be a member of that plan in five or six years.
0: So when we, we talk about uh, the four mutually reinforcing principles in, in our network vision, I think about first, of course, being equal rights. When I think about equal rights and what we've talked about today, one of the most glaring examples of, of unequal rights is the idea that a doctor or a service provider needs to go to the government to ask if they can provide a service. They're qualified to yeah. to, to provide to people who want that service. And that, that you know, butchers don't have to do that. And, uh, you know, bakers don't have to do that. I don't, maybe candlestick makers do. I don't know. <laughs> but that seems to me to be a, a, a glaring example of unequal rights, where we have a whole, whole profession here who needs to ask permission. Is there another example of unequal rights or, or how we would look at uh, health care through the lens of equal rights?
1: Yeah. I mean, another great example of this is if you're a rural resident. For example, um, right now in many states where they restrict access to nurse practitioners, they basically say you what those state laws essentially say is you can't have regular routine healthcare access unless you can make the business model of a private practice run by a doctor work. And if that and if your area doesn't have enough patients and they aren't wealthy enough to pay for his services, you just don't get a doctor's office near you. And that's oftentimes why we see rural areas without primary care, because there simply aren't enough people there at a high enough income level to make a doctor's office worse. And to top it all off, they restrict nurse practitioners and nurse specialists um, who can make the financing work because they charge a lot less and they have a lot less overhead. They make it far more difficult for those providers who do want to treat them from going in. Um and actually providing um, those services.
0: when you look at mutual benefit, I think it's it's obvious what we're talking about, but mm-hmm. I mean it, when you when you break down these barriers, when you when you essentially get government out of the way, when you stop the cronyists, cronyists out there from from erecting these barriers, yeah. it's obviously mutually beneficial when when what we've talked about, how it benefits the doctors, how it lowers their stress level, keeps them from burning out as much, and, and how it helps. That the patients actually get access to healthcare. What what am I missing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you 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 covered the main points. I mean, I think for me with healthcare, it's it's helpful to kind of break it down into two main dimensions because it's such a a big issue space. And one is the the payment side for care, and this is you know how we get you know how we pay for healthcare in this country. And right now, you know we have you know major public health insurance. Or subsidized insurance through the government, whether it's through employer sponsored coverage, through Medicare, the public health insurance program for seniors, through Medicaid uh, for those with limited resources, or now through the Affordable Care Act, subsidized coverage for uh, the individual market. Again, this goes back to a theme we were talking about earlier where a lot of these policies are well intentioned, they're meant to provide access to care, but a lot of them have had the effect of separating the patient and the provider, inserting a third-party payer. And that is really uh, the crux of a lot of this is we've, we've removed the incentives that have caused so many other industries and sectors to flourish um, and inserted that third-party payer, which has really dampened the incentives for, for patients to seek out the highest quality care at the lowest possible cost. And it turns out when you remove those incentives, you get really bad side effects um, so that's, so a, a lot of this is on that dimension of the, the payment side of care. And then the second dimension is a lot of what we've been talking about today, um, which is really more on how healthcare is delivered, how it is supplied, um, the, the experience we have with our healthcare providers. And this goes back to the the certificate of need regulations or telemedicine that we've been talking about. Um, but that is where, you know, we also, again, we have these regulations that prevent, mutually beneficial exchange from uh, in between uh, providers and patients. Um, and, you know, ultimately we want to move away uh, from these restrictions on mutually beneficial exchange on both the payment and the delivery side of healthcare.
0: We noted earlier that a lot of this is, is protectionist space, which leads us to, to openness, you know, the, uh, the r- <clears throat> dimension of openness. Uh, mm-hmm. i I've, Again, I, I I think it's obvious that if we allow, if we open up this entire area, and stop these these protections, stop the cronyism, stop the uh, the barriers from being erected, <clears throat> we will see incredible innovations that we we couldn't possibly imagine. And we've already talked about one of those in in the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. What what they're doing there is completely innovative. They're putting everything out there, saying this is what you can expect to pay, and. You could have something like that all across America if we just broke down these barriers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you mentioned the the specific reform that is needed there, Charlie, but it's mm-hmm. simply clarifying that direct primary care facilities not be regulated as an insurance product, um, which they're not. So I think in many cases, allowing this openness to flourish really should be pretty simple you know, policy tweaks. And another one that comes to mind for me for this one is going back to telehealth and allowing... Um, providers to be able to, you know, offer services to patients across the states via um, telehealth technology. So I think, yeah, that's, this is ultimately the system that we want to move to.
0: And we've, we touched on uh, self-actualization a little bit ago, but I think it's important to reemphasize when you, when you are at home and you are looking at a stack of bills that you will take years and years to pay off if ever, it is difficult for you to focus on self-actualization when you're worried about your most basic needs. Like, how am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to clothe my children? It is it is difficult when you can't meet the basic needs at the bottom of Maslow's Pyramid. You can't focus at what's on the top.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, healthcare is one of the biggest reasons why people get those enormous bills in the mail and they can't self-actualize. Um, they landed with a big out-of-pocket uh, bill from the emergency room. Uh, their child uh, has an expensive illness. Um, and a lot of that is driven by all these barriers that we're talking about.
2: Yeah. Um, and we're all seeing the headlines right now about the, you know, increasing cost of of care. Um, and, and, you know, part of this, is I, I think, is, you know... As people become better off, it's natural that we want to spend more more money on on the you know medical care, on something that's going to make us healthier. But that doesn't mean that there aren't significant underlying cost drivers right now that aren't being addressed. And I think that's really what we want to do is, is look for those underlying barriers.
0: You know, one thing I want to go back real quick to, to mutual benefit and one thing we didn't talk about that I, I think is important is the idea that as we allow government to have all these things in place – we tend to, we tend to focus on the idea that this is a government, something government should be doing. And I keep asking the question, what if, what if government didn't do that? What if they, they didn't get involved the way they did? And it again, it goes back to what America used to be like. America used to be, you know, floor to ceiling mutual aid societies. We had, we had organizations that came together with, with the intent of helping people get the health care that they needed. And as we, Keep turning to government to say they need to do this, or we need to have these these solutions. We are ignoring the solutions that could actually bring us together better as communities, to to bring us together better as neighbors, and that is a is, a, is an unfortunate uh, casualty in this whole argument.
2: Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I think again, you know, one of the the major problems with our current system is we don't know the role that communities or that business could play in our current healthcare system because so much of that role has been crowded out by the role that government has tried to play via top-down solutions. And so I think, you know, we really need to have a multifaceted approach um, and try to look for those bright spots in business and in communities while also, you know, working to move government to its proper role in healthcare as well. Um but I think it's worth just emphasizing again, it's a point you've already made in this conversation, Dwayne, but on self-actualization, you know, it's part of it is on the, you know, the folks who are using the healthcare system and who are, are spending their hard earned money on it. And the other part of it is on the providers, on the entrepreneurs who are able to bring those solutions back. And I just think that's a really key point. If ultimately we think that the folks who are best positioned to solve problems are the ones who are closest to those problems, right? That's a guiding kind of philosophy of our community. And it translates into our healthcare work as well, that we think the best solutions come from the bottom up. Then ultimately we want to make sure that the key institutions of society put those entrepreneurs and providers in a position to be able to bring those solutions to the table. And so right now we just don't know what we're missing, in so many cases, because they can't bring those solutions to the table. So that is, that's is—that's really a guiding light for a lot of our work, is being able to allow or allowing those solutions to come forward.
0: Speaking of not knowing what we're missing, the one thing I think I, I, I need to ask is, what am I not asking you that I should be asking you? I, I, I have this nagging feeling of the unknown unknown. What is it that I don't know I don't know that I should be asking you about? Did I miss anything? Or do I have just such an innate understanding of this issue that I nailed it first try?
2: Yeah, I've been uh, wondering this whole conversation if you could get out of my head. I feel like you've been able to read my <laughs> thoughts, Dwayne. It's kind of creeping me out. No, I mean I think we've really hit on the the big points here. I mean I think you know key points are the roles that different institutions can play in healthcare um, and the major you know public policy components of healthcare. You know the how we pay for it, how insurance is you know, subsidized in this country, and also you know improving the delivery side of health care. I think one thing that we talked about but is a point that's really worth reemphasizing is that, and it goes back to this idea of Band-Aid solutions, that so much of the the debate, especially the kind of high-profile conversations that make headlines that are happening at the federal level, is they're on insurance coverage. How can we get as many people insurance cards as possible and the payment side of healthcare you know has significant issues and i know the the team at americans for prosperity has done a lot of work to kind of understand what those steps are that can be taken at the federal level but really a huge opportunity in healthcare right now is on that delivery side so rather than just focusing on how to improve coverage how can we make healthcare better for people which is ultimately what we should care about insurance coverage is you know, it can play a role in an overall healthcare system, but ultimately, what we should care about is making sure that people can access the best possible healthcare at the lowest cost. And that is where these delivery side reforms come into play. And there's such an opportunity because so many of those regulations are at the state level right now rather than the federal level. And that, so that's where we're seeing a lot of progress. And I think that's where I'm most optimistic um, in the short term, at least.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the discussion at the federal level has been around, how do we expand coverage? How do we cover more people? And that's an important discussion. Um, But what all that ignores, like Elliot said, is that a big reason why health insurance is so unaffordable is because the underlying cost of care is so expensive. And I think people in Washington, they focus a lot on coverage because that's their area of responsibility, That's what the government does. The government spends money and that's how they feel. That's where they feel that the solution lies. Unfortunately for them, a lot of the solution, a lot of the reasons why healthcare is so expensive is because of those barriers that have come at the state level. And it's going to take a long, (laughs) a long multifaceted approach and a multi-year process to remove these barriers that have accumulated over decades. And it's, All these issues, all these problems, all these government barriers, they're not going to be swept away in one legislative session. Um, It's going to take a long process of educating lawmakers, educating activists and voters um, that these barriers are the reason why not just the cost of health care is expensive, but the cost of health insurance. Um, And if you want to cover more people, and if you want to bring down the cost of just being able to afford a basic health insurance plan, you need to bring down the cost of care. And that's going to take a long, uh, a, yeah. a long process of removing those uh, issues.
2: Yeah, but I, I'm excited because, you know, I think there are, are few players in the space, and Charlie can correct me if, if I'm mischaracterizing, but I think there are few players in this space that are really looking at that, at what Charlie just outlined in a really holistic way, and so I'm excited about our opportunity to really bring that perspective to the table, and we're already finding a lot of success in building coalition partners on a lot of these issues, whether it's um, practice authority for nurse practitioners or mm-hmm. certificate of need regulations, who want to be a part of the kind of positive solution. How can we make healthcare better in this country? So, uh, I'm I'm optimistic despite lots of reasons not to be in healthcare. <laughs>
1: oh yeah i am as well and there is a growing bipartisan agreement um on both the left and the right that the barriers we've been talking about um need to be removed um medicare for all public options at the federal level those are going to be those are going to draw a lot of partisan division but the question of should a hospital be be able to open where in communities that need healthcare services that has bipartisan agreement Should a nurse that has all the training to deliver primary care, should they be able to practice freely without having to work under a doctor? That has bipartisan agreement. And with telemedicine as well, that's simply allowing providers to deliver care remotely as they would in person. Um, So these things that we've been talking about, they they aren't just things that... We know we'll bring down costs and expand access, but there's a real opportunity to reach across the aisle and form real coalitions at the state level and the national level to get them done.
0: Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.